Welcome to St. Martin's Fields and welcome to great sacred music. Thomas Aquinas lived from about 1224 until 1274. He was the greatest medieval uh, theologian. Why? Because in his work was brought together the two uh, great strands of Christian theology. First of all, the strand originating with Plato and then coming through Augustine, the, perhaps the greatest theologian of the church in the fourth, fifth centuries. Uh, but then also Aquinas was indebted to the Muslim scholars who had kept alive the tradition of Aristotle, first of all in the Middle East and then coming up through Spain. Uh, and so Aquinas is the person in whom the Greek traditions of Plato and Aristotle come together uh, and are harmonized in Christian theology, still incredibly influential, particularly in Catholic uh, theology today. But, but his liturgical music focuses on actually just three pieces of music, uh, all of which are uh, permeate uh, in different ways the music that we're going to hear this lunchtime. They are the three hymns he wrote for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Fascinating festival. You'd think that we already have Maundy Thursday. We don't need another occasion to celebrate uh, the institution of Holy Communion. Uh, but of course, that festival is taken up with Easter, is taken up with foot washing, is taken up with the stripping of the altars and a lot of things that don't have much to do with the exact sacrament itself. So Juliana of Liege is the name you need to remember. She spent 40 years contemplating the mystery of Holy Communion, along with many sisters in Belgium in the 12th and early 13th century. Her work persuaded Thomas Aquinas to petition the Pope for a special festival for the celebration and the commemoration of Holy Communion, which came about in 1264. Remember that date, 1264, really important, because you'll find that he wrote his three Eucharistic hymns in 1263. So what Thomas Aquinas was saying to the Pope was, we really need a special festival, Corpus Christi, the body, the body of Christ, of, of Holy Communion, and here are some hymns I've already prepared earlier that would go incredibly nicely with such a festival. Quite a persuasive tactic it proved. And we're going to start with uh, singing together, as is our custom at Great Sacred Music, one of those translated by the great 19th century translator John Mason uh, Neal. So this one started off as an Advent hymn uh, in the 10th century and Aquinas adapted it uh, in 1263 uh, and this translation, part of the revival of the Catholic strand of the Church of England in the 19th century known as the Oxford movement, the Tractarian movement, uh, it was included in the appendix to the first edition of hymns ancient mon. The, fir the first edition came out in 1861, a very significant date in 19th century hymnody, and they already needed an appendix by 1868 because it was such a popular and influential book. We'll uh, remain seated. If you find on the inside of your sheets the words on the, the left-hand page, on page two, the words that, uh, translated by John Mason Neal of the heavenly word proceeding forth, the voices will stand and lead us.
the uh, hymn from which the original uh, Thomas Aquinas Corpus Christi hymn from which the verses we've just sung are an excerpt uh, is quite a long hymn and uh, we're going to hear now two settings of later verses of that same hymn. Uh, the first setting by Palestrina, set by Palestrina, and the second is a fascinating uh, contemporary piece by James Macmillan, which interweaves devotion to the Holy Communion with uh, the words of the so-called Serenity Prayer, which is um, a prayer that was written by Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, in the late 1930s, uh, and then gradually in the late 1940s, became adopted by the Alcoholics Anonymous movement, within which it's still a very significant cultural uh, feature. Uh, so the serenity prayer, uh, um, God me, give me grace to accept the things I cannot change, the, the, uh, the serenity, sorry, the serenity to ex accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, it's a very, very well-known prayer, which I just got wrong, uh, but, but it's nonetheless a very, very well-known prayer. And, but I think Reinhold Niebuhr, if he were alive today, would be somewhat surprised to know the influence it's had, given the rather obscure setting in which he originally wrote it. But the most important thing you need to know about Reinhold Niebuhr, possibly the most influential theologian of the 20th century, is that uh, my grandfather was a priest and my grandfather presided at Reinhold Niebuhr's wedding. Isn't that the most important thing? Uh, because my father grew up with uh, Reinhold's wife, Ursula, as playmates in Hampshire in the 1920s. How about that? Anyway, not strictly relevant to the Holy Communion, but you can dwell on that or other things as you hear these two reflections on Corpus Christi.
Well, there's a significant contrast here, because the piece you've just heard only makes sense in a Catholic setting. That's to say, you imagine yourself at the service of benediction. That's to say, the consecrated host, the, the priest's wafer, is exposed, is shown uh, on the altar, and the congregation sit in devoted silence, uh, contemplating it. And they contemplate the complexity of the fact that this is just a, just a piece of bread, and yet this is the whole purpose and meaning of the universe contained in this piece of bread and the paradox of those two things. And you can see how the, the significance of the, uh, the serenity, to use Reinhold Niebuhr's term, of contemplating the, the significance of what's being seen by a devoted Catholic congregation at benediction corresponds to that sense of accepting the things you can't change. Uh, and finding the wisdom to know what are the things you can change and to invest in those things. A paradox is that another text that we're about to hear, set by Olivier Messier, um, beginning of the 20th century in France, uh, is it's not quite clear that this is by Aquinas. And this isn't one of the three hymns. It's, another, it's an antiphon from the, the, the Vespers of, of uh, Corpus Christi. And... It's attributed to Aquinas, it's, it's in the same spirit in lots of ways, but what's different about it is that, the, I'll just read you the words, uh, it's gonna be sung in Latin, but the English words are, O sacred feast at which Christ is received, the memory of his passion is renewed, our souls are filled with grace and a pledge of future glory is given to us, alleluia. Why is that paradoxical? It's because those are words that any Protestant would be comfortable singing whereas the, the whole tradition of Corpus Christi is like off-the-scale Catholic. Uh, uh, and so the people have questioned whether Aquinas really wrote these words because it's in a different sort of character to the other music for Corpus Christi. Anyway, you can make your own judgment. Let's hear Messian setting now.
Okay, it's time for us all to sing again now. If you'd like to take your sheets and, uh, and turn to page three, A Godhead Here in Hiding. This is uh, another of uh, Thomas's three great Euchar uh, Eucharistic hymns uh, for Corpus Christi, Adoro Te Devoti is the name of this, this uh, hymn. And the translation uh, is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Again, you can, you can begin to see the clustering of themes around the late 19th century, early 20th century, when the, the fascination with these details of a very high Catholic view of the Mass uh, were all in a kind of uh, crescendo. The, the basic theme of this hymn is that if we were to come face to face with God, we would be totally overwhelmed. So in God's mercy, God comes to us in the form of bread and wine in ways that we can touch and drink because we can deal with that and not be overwhelmed in the way that we would be if we were to come face to face uh, with God. That's the, that's the theory. Uh, let's, in the same way as we did before, we remain seated, voices stand and lead us as we sing Godhead here in hiding.
Well, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music uh, for this week. If you've enjoyed yourself, I hope you have. There's an opportunity to make a donation to the retiring collection as you leave. If you are now cashless, there are no ways to escape. There are also ways to, to make donations by text, online, or with a card that you can sweep across a machine as you leave too, all sorts of ways. Uh, next week at this time, we'll be looking at Dvorak's Mass in D, next Thursday lunchtime, and uh, the end of the summer means that Choral Classics, our uh, sister event on Sunday afternoons at 3.15, is uh, back this weekend with the theme, Peace I Leave With You. Also, if you want to get to know our music and our singers better, you may be interested to know that singers from St. Martin's Voices uh, present a selection of choral favorites in a new series of 30-minute online concerts. Each of the three summer sessions concerts is programmed and introduced by a member of the ensemble, sharing their personal reflections in the repertoire and giving some behind-the-scenes insight into performings with St. Martin's Voices. Do look online for um, these three sessions. Tickets are £5, or you can buy all three concerts for £12. We finish with uh, the best known of Thomas's three Eucharistic Corpus Christi hymns, Parnis Angelicus. In fact, Parnis Angelicus is not the name of the hymn because it's actually a verse tucked away late in, uh, uh, late in one of those three hymns. Uh, Sacris Solemnis is the name of the, the hymn in which you find Parnis Angelicus. But what's fascinating to me about uh, this, uh, this hymn is the line, and I I'm speak to those who are fluent Latin speakers now, uh, man ducat dominum pauper servus et humilis, uh, which, as I'm sure you know, uh, means the humble pauper eats his Lord. It, it re I mean, it's the most fascinating line in any of, any of Aquinas' uh, Corpus Christi hymns uh, for, for my money this idea of this total social reversal, that God has become so humble that in Christ he not only becomes flesh but becomes bread and wine, which enables the most humble person in the world, the pauper, to eat the one who was the creator of the universe. It's this fascinating uh, reflection on the reality of what it means for God, uh, for the body of Christ to be present in Jesus and present in the bread and the wine. Thanks for joining us.